All right, so we've got a bunch of text messages coming through. I think mm-hmm. we stirred some people up. <laughs> yeah, classic. <laughs> oh, I hope people have things to say about woke maths. I think we've got one here on woke maths. We do. We have one on woke maths. Good. <laughs> okay. All right. Reliance Petroleum. So right back at the beginning of the uh, of the show. Yes. Uh, the powers at B have decided the future belongs to renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And what a great idea. I'm a bit sceptical because I know what the Bible says about end times. Do you think there are enough years left for them to achieve this? I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so either. Yeah, neither. I don't know. Honestly. I don't know. It's good effort. But I don't think so. And it's viewed from the perspective, like, like big renewable energy pushes are viewed from two perspectives. One of them is like um, save the, you know, save and manage the planet from the here and the now, which is very much the Christian perspective. Yes. The, but the other perspective is, oh, you know, if we're going to be sustainable forever, like if the world's going to go on forever, we're going to have to protect it, da-da-da-da-da, which is... No, That's right. So the Christian perspective, perspective. The, the Christian perspective is to manage the world because it is God's creation, mm. and to manage it wisely and to treat it as God's creation that He has loaned to us. Mm. That's the Christian perspective, and that should give us a much a higher appreciation for the environment than the worldly perspective, which is like, well, we just need the human species to continue for eternity. Which I think, which it won't, like on it, this earth, you really like have the ability then if it's like oh it's ours and we just need it to continue you really have the ability then for someone to just say oh well you know i'm going to be dead in seven years time so i may as well enjoy my seven years exactly it's that's right and that's what we see that is literally our. there are so many people that have that attitude Mm. and this is where christianity is the best one because it doesn't matter what attitude or background you come from, mm. everyone has a responsibility to yes. look after God's creation yes. that he has entrusted into our care. Mm. Good stuff. All right, work maths. Now racist and gendered, question mark, question mark, question mark. The people, the people that come up with these ideas must be the geniuses of the 23rd, 21st century. <laughs> I nearly said 23rd, but maybe that was... <laughs> It's amazing these people actually have private meetings to come up with such wisdom. Very tongue-in-cheek right here. The idea is to see how much garbage people will accept. It's psychological warfare, which they seem to be winning. How much more will the world take? And, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it does very much feel like people are just seeing how far can we push human beings and they will still continue to believe it. Also, like, work maths is just an, an excuse to have pity on yourself. That, that Like, I'm going to say unabashedly, like, yep. is, is just uh, everyone pity me, I, I face challenges. Like, uh, because it's, all, it's from the perspective that you can claim to not be privileged enough to be good enough at maths for maths to be relevant to you, and therefore we do away with maths because you're not privileged enough to learn it. And that's how it's like started as like a race thing and now it's a gendered thing. Okay, so there are a lot of people who struggle in life, and I get that. Mm. The way to solve that is by giving them opportunities for further education. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, for people who are underprivileged, you know, putting them in situations where they can get the education they need. We don't solve that by getting rid of education. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. All right. Vaccinations. You knew it was going to come, right? Ooh, here you, we go. Yeah, you yeah. You knew it was going to come. <laughs> um, okay. Two friends of mine at church know three people who died after taking the vaccine. I know one. Mm. A bit too close for home. 
And I was just chatting with um, Darren offline, and he's like, ooh, I took the Pfizer one. There's no way I'm taking the AstraZeneca because he actually works with somebody um, whose daughter died from AstraZeneca. So, so this is, close this is the crazy thing is that, like, so the big um, compelling factor when it comes to taking the vaccine is a lot of people are like, oh, but the statistics, it's like less than 1% die from corona, da 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 da. And the, the, um, the, 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 compelling reason to take the vaccine is that statistics don't matter if anyone is dying we should protect them but then it seems as though now people are taking the vaccine and it's like oh but you know statistics like oh look at all these people that are going to be saved hey the the, the most risky thing that you can ever do lawson the most risky thing you can ever do is be born (laughs) yes it's you're guaranteed to die (laughs) yikes Okay. Anyway, just 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 think about that. Mm. Uh, where are we? A bit too close to home, but I don't think people should rush to take it, in spite of what is being said by the powers that be. And I agree with that. I think everybody should do their own research and make up their own decision. Mm. And we shouldn't just blindly follow either side of the research. Mm. If you're only if you're only reading one side of the research, then you're not getting a balanced view. We need to read both sides of the research. Uh, the powers be. I know people who want to do the right thing and rightly so, but I do wonder why the you know tens of thousands of doctors and scientists worldwide don't get the opportunity to give the other side of the story on the major media stations. And this is the interesting thing about the world in which we live today, and that is this: that's kind of not as relevant as it used to be, mm. because we have social media. Mm. And uh, as Darren and I were saying. Probably half of my social media, when any time I look at it, is anti-vax. Yeah, wow. Well. Anti-vax research. Mm. So the research is both sides of the equation. I think is very, very readily available to everybody mm. to research both sides of the equation on this subject. Mm. And so we should be we we should look at both sides, make up our own mind mm. between us and God. With prayer. I, I think uh, just another aspect is that, like, I, I feel like because of the tension that is created, you can become apathetic to the problem. Like, in in a sense that, like, it's like, oh, everyone's saying one thing and everyone's saying another thing and, just, uh, and you can become apathetic. And I, But I think this is a problem that needs to be solved and I'm just, I'm in a place where I'm like, man, what do I do? <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, just a thought. How can we make a correct decision on a one-sided conversation? And that's why I say do your mm. research, make your decision, um, and we'll go from there. All right, next uh, text message here. This one comes from Jennifer. Good morning. I get upset when government interferes in family matters and relationships. Mm. I'm curious to know when the child who is 11 years old has their vaccination without parental consent and something goes seriously wrong after taking the jab or it is life-threatening, because we, you know, for some mm. people that is, uh, who is liable in this situation? The government, the doctor, or the parents? Yeah. Well, certainly question. not going to be the parents. Good question. But someone is going to be liable mm. when they mess up. Yeah, wow. Somebody's going to be paying the bill. And this is why I think that this legal case that is passing through Washington, D.C. right now, I think they're actually going to win it. Mm. I think that law is going to be knocked down as being illegal. It's certainly immoral. Yeah. To teach children to, you know, lie to their parents uh, from school, to have two medical records. Nah. You're listening to Faith FM. 
Positively Different Radio. Okay, so yesterday we had a great uh, we had a great time talking about um, the, the story of David and Bathsheba. Yes, and Ooh. yeah, somewhat controversial. Yeah, uh, we'd still love to hear your thoughts on this one. One of the thoughts that did come through from a listener was that we spent too much time making David look like a bad person and not remembering that this was a man after God's own heart. And how does David become a type of Christ when David did such terrible things? And I think that that's, this was something that came through from a listener after the show, so we didn't have time to talk about it, but I think it's a really good point mm. that we should stop and think about. So why, if David is a man after after God's own heart, if he is a type of Jesus Christ, if he is an ancestor of Jesus Christ, if he is the person who is mentioned more times in the Bible than anyone else other than Jesus Christ, mm. then what's going on when he commits adultery and murder and possibly power rape and murder? Mm. That's pretty awful, right? Yeah. I mean, those are, those are sins that are not just next level, they are top level. Yeah. They are the kind of crimes that, you know, in our society, our, our society recognises these as the worst crimes you can commit. You, you have the potential for the death penalty for doing that. This is in, absolutely. In, in, not in Multiple like, countries. In, in the West. Yeah, in the in, West. In the United States. That's right. Mm. Absolutely. So we're talking about somebody. So, so how, do we, how, do we, how do we deal with this issue of David being a man after God's own heart, and David doing this. I mean, he's mm. far worse than us, right? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> ah. It's like, it's, 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 yeah, it's tough because it's... Clearly, though, we have a, a big scope of David's whole life. Yes. But then there's also a saying, and it's like, you know... Uh, this is something my dad has said to me a lot. You can build bridges... All, you can be a man that builds bridges all over the world... But if one bridge collapses and a child dies, then it's your fault. Yes. Like this idea that, you know, one wrong move can tarnish a legacy. Absolutely. And so in this case, it's... And, and when it's something so serious like this, um, that David also faced consequences for, you know, the child was lost and people found out and, and different things. Oh, the consequences for this. It kind of wrecked his kingdom for the rest of his life. On, honestly, like, this had such a dramatic effect on him, on yeah. his children, on his family. Like, David pre-Bathsheba and David post-Bathsheba, you're looking at, like, you're looking at, it's, like, it's almost like a, like a sports career with an injury in the middle. You know, yes. it's crazy. And, and, and the injury in the middle puts him in a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's still there. He's still going. Yeah. But he's ruling from a wheelchair. Yeah. And it's it's like, yeah. So from that perspective of, is David better than us? Is David worse than us? Was David legit or not? Is he after God's heart? Here's what, the, here's what our listener pointed out, and I think it's a very good point. The potential to do what David did exists in every human being. Amen. Mm. Anytime that we sit back and we think that we are better than David, we need to remember that the potential and that this was not something that just happened overnight. This was a journey. This was a path. Mm. And all sin, you know, Satan doesn't come to you and I and tempt us today with murder. Mm. But if he can, he will lead us down a path of hatred that will build up to that. Yeah. Mm. Until he eventually gets us there. And so um, this is this is what we see when we you know, look at human nature, mm. and you see it. You see it very clearly 
illustrated when there is armed conflict. Mm. Something that David was not unfamiliar with. When you have armed conflict, what you're going to find is that there is never going to be an armed conflict and that there is never going to be a side in an armed conflict that doesn't involve itself in atrocities. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just doesn't exist. Mm. And do people, you know, go into the military be like, yeah, I'm going to become a war criminal? No. Do they end up there? Yes. Mm. We know this from history. Yeah. There's never been a military organization that hasn't gone down this path. Even like... Or a war that hasn't gone down this path. Yeah, 100%. And we can view history and see even like the most virtuous of causes to go into into war. Like, yeah, you can you can like, you know, pull out like the Iraq war and Afghanistan and the Middle East and, and like that's a clear... But even like, you know, you look at World War Two and the United States... And it's like they got sucked into that war because... Oh, yeah, and there's plenty, you know, of, plenty of atrocities there that America doesn't like to talk about Yeah, and Australia doesn't like to talk about because we won the war yeah. and we get to write the history. Yeah, 100%. And it, it, because the narrative that is told is, oh, they bombed Pearl Harbor unprovoked and so we went and attacked them. And then it's like, you, then you have like fire bombings on civilian cities in Japan and, and yeah. two nuclear bombs mm-hmm. and like these terrible, terrible things. And then you've got to ask yourself the question, could the war have been won without it? And, of course, that's another whole discussion. And mm. it's just like, you know, as uh, Omar Bradley said, war is terrible. <laughs> I was going to say what he said, but then I thought, I can't say that on air. <laughs> war is terrible. It's yeah. just, there's just... War involves atrocities, and there's no way of getting around that. That was that was what he was that was what he was saying. Wow. All right. Okay. So text message coming through, and I think this is a good one right here. Jesus came to save the sinners. David was a man like the rest of us, and in reality, we don't know what we are capable of. Yeah, this true is fact. true. True fact, right there. It's like, and this is why this story is in the Bible. It, you know, when the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? I think God is really trying to, to get to us, you know, the, the point that, yeah, the entire the entirety of sin lives within the confines of the human heart. Or when we say that, it's symbolic of, you know, the capabilities of humanity. Uh, I've heard it said before, the only person who can lie to you worse than the devil is yourself. Ooh. Is your own heart um, because it's truth because it's ultimately you who makes the action. Yeah, the devil can tempt you, and and as we were talking about yesterday, was it David's? You know, was it David's? Um, was it da- was David innocent or was it his fault? Yes, it was a hundred percent his fault. Even if we put it in the circumstance, we were, we were talking talking about how it's like a power rape and different things. But even if we put it in a circumstance where Bathsheba is the ultimate temptress. You know, yes, and and but then we looked at another example of Joseph, and it's like, well, he got through. That's right. He he stood up to conflict in this way, and uh, he he ran from it. Um, whereas David didn't. Um, but then we kind of recognized that that's not the situation. Is that it was actually yeah more. You know, she wasn't a temper temptress. It was a terrible situation. Um, but the reality is, is like, oh man, we. We are the ones responsible for this, and and we and then it's like the question is okay. Well, then how can we make the right decisions if we are so bent towards this? If even the man who was after God's own heart would end up in this way, how how can we not? Essentially, I think yeah. I don't know what we're gonna do in our Bible study. I'm just sitting here. Second Samuel chapter eleven verse six. Ooh, let's. Second Samuel. I believe that the story of David is there both as a warning. And as an encouragement. Mm. 
It's a warning that, okay, any of you guys can end up here. Doesn't matter mm. how, you know, David, David rode in the, on, on the high places of the earth mm. with God. You know, he was, he was up there. He was flying high. He was doing righteous things. He was living a righteous life. And then he does this. Oh, and this is where we got to in the story yesterday. It is. We're picking where, up from where we left off. So basically, um, in verse 5, Bathsheba discovers she's pregnant Yes, and tells David. And then it So continu- how does David solve the problem? Continues on in verse 6. It says, Then David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked, uh, asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would, uh, I swear that I would no, never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you'll return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. Yeah, wow. This is yeah, David is in such a mess right here. Yeah. And, and this is where it's really spiraling out of control for mm. David because he's trying to cover up this sin in any way that he possibly can. Mm. He is desperate to get this covered up. Yeah. I, I assume uh, Bathsheba's still in the place where she's probably started, like, vomiting and, you know, missing menstruation. And it's like, oh, it's not obvious yet. Okay, we'll get Uriah to sleep with her and then it'll work out. But not happening. it's just not working. Because Uriah's – and the reason it's not working is because Uriah is everything that David is not. He's faithful. Yep. <laughs> and, and the great thing here is that, you know, he's a Hittite. He's concerned about the Ark of God. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Let's get back to our Bible study and let's pick up from verse 13 and see how David continues to try and sort this problem out. Okay, so basically we've gotten up to this point and David, well, basically like Uriah, he's not giving in. He's trying to get him drunk as well. Which is just like every time you see alcohol used in the Bible, it's in a bad circumstance, and we see it here as well. He tries to get him drunk. He still won't go to his wife. So in verse 14, it continues on. It says, So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to spot uh, assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall. Yeah, and he- so, 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 so Uriah the Hittite carries this letter, uh-huh. and he's such an honourable person. He never looks inside of it. No, he carries. A se- he is everything that David is not. A sealed letter from the king yep. with his death sentence inside of it. Wow! Wow! And continues on. Basically, it says, "So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting." And when the, 
And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several of the several of the other Israelite soldiers. So not only did it cause Uriah's death, but a number of people who went up with him because there's got to be collateral in this situation to be yep. able to cover yep. it up. Send him on a suicide mission. Um, and then Joab sent the a battle report back to David. Wow. wow. This mm. is heavy stuff right here. This is just, it's just awful. Uh, and how does David react? Where are we up to? Let's just keep reading. This. Okay, so this. we keep reading on in verse 20. It says, uh, oh, verse 19, uh, he told his message a report all the news uh, of the battle to the king, but he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know there would be shooting? They would be shooting from the walls. Wasn't Abimelech, uh, wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed by Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down um, on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messengers went to Jerusalem and gave the complete report to David. The enemy came against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back into the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives, then gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with that, with all that David had done. Okay, so this is a mess. Yeah. This is a disastrous mess. You know, And you can see what's taking place here because the battle report comes back and Joab is an experienced general. He's mm. an experienced operator. He knows how to take a city. He's done this many times before. Mm. And he's not the kind of person who makes silly mistakes. He didn't get his position by making silly mistakes. Mm. He and David have fought together for decades. Yeah. And they know how to take a city. And they know you don't get too close to the walls because that's a trap. That's a kill zone because you're going to have archers on the walls. Mm. And so what, what Joab has done here is given an order that is a ridiculous order and in normal circumstances this is the kind of order that could get you fired or even mm. executed because you have you know your decision has cost the lives of Israelite men who were innocent and particularly Uriah the Hittite, who is counted as one of David's mightiest men. Mm. You know, when you read through the list of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite was one of the best warriors that he had. Mm. You know, and you kind of wonder, well, how did Uriah the Hittite become a part of Israel? Well, it was probably because of his military prowess. You know, it was hard to become a part of the nation of Israel in those days, but he was a valuable man. Mm. And so, in the normal circumstances, this would be something that David would get incredibly upset about. But instead, he's like, well, you know, uh, sword kills some people, and some people it doesn't. It's just how wars go. So, tell Joab to. Fight harder. Very uncharacteristic. You know what? Like, it, it's even... Because we talked about from this point how it cripples David, wrecks his family, but also Joab himself. Because you would go to see what kind of actions Joab would make in the future, what kind of things he would do. Yes. And the kind of man that he would become, which would be like a, a ruthless killer, basically, um, basically, to get his way in the kingdom because he thought he knew best for what needed to happen. And Because I, David was killing people to get his way mm-hmm. in the kingdom. Because that, that's exactly who Joab becomes, mm. the man who... Because Joab is loyal as... 
Like, he is. Joy, joy. And he knows the word of God. He knows mm. the Bible. Mm. You know, because when David goes, go and number Israel, he's like, well, why would, why would you do this, David? This is going to be a snare. This is going to, to cause, you know, why would you, why would you cause, why would you sin by doing this? Mm. So Joab knows his Bible. Mm. But this is not good for Joab. Yeah. I think this really sets Joab on a path that, you know, once we get down to old Joab, he is just a wild, loose cannon who's just been totally, I think, jaded by this experience, by having to uh-huh. kill his own men, his and own probably, friends. probably, you know, one of David's David mightiest sake. men, this would have been a close-knit group. Yeah, 100%. These are the guys that are on da- with David on the road, right? Like, when David's being attacked by Saul, like, we're talking about the camaraderie of camaraderies, like these people who have supported David in his darkest times. Of course, they've all fought together. David has made up his own, and now David's the king. It's like, oh, we've made it. The boys have made it. And Joab would have been able to see through what was going on because, okay, Bathsheba is a beautiful woman, and mm. David marries her as soon as he finds out that... Um, Uriah is 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 dead, and then there is a baby on the way. You know, Joab would not have had to think hard to put two and three to, two and two together to figure mm. out what was going on in this situation. Yeah, this is corruption at the highest level. Yeah, and we need to stop and talk about why this story is in the Bible. Mm. How could David ever be a man after God's own heart? How could David ever be a type of Christ when you have a story? Like this, mm. and the answer is because of how David responds. Mm. And when you compare the first two kings of Israel, I'm going to spend more time on this tomorrow. But when you compare the first two kings of Israel, both of them sin. Saul's sin is that he spares the life of Agag mm-hmm. and a bunch of sheep and cattle mm. for sacrifices. David's sin is rape, murder, adultery, you know, whatever you want, and corruption at the highest level. Which one is the bigger sin? Mm. But which one loses the kingdom and which one becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Wow. And the key is in how they respond when their sin is pointed out. Mm. And the lesson for us is that there is a God of grace who has salvation for every person, no matter how big our sin. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. It is now time for... Question of the Day. All right, Lyle, our question of the day comes from a friend of mine, actually, Johanna, and it is, how should Christians be spending their time when it comes to political and religious freedom issues? More specifically, thinking of a lot of the work that ACL does, are Matthew 5.39 and Ephesians 6.12 relevant? Okay, so this is a really good question, particularly in today's society where you have a situation where there are some real issues in relationship to religious liberty, Mm. and it's worth considering... You know, how do, how do we respond? And so, you know, you've got this passage here in Matthew chapter 5. Let me just read it for you. What verse was that again? 539. 539. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Mm. And so should, should we, because of this, not get politically involved? Mm. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and, mm. you know, in high places, etc. So the issue really here in that passage is that you know they're asking you know isn't our battle more about sharing the gospel 
Mm. and wrestling against Satan than it is about issues of religious liberty or temperance or whatever else it might be. Okay, these passages need to be balanced out with the other great political figures of the Bible. Mm. And so I'm going to use a couple of examples. Uh, Probably the most prominent one would be the Grand Vizier of the Babylonian Empire, a man by the name of Belteshazzar, Mm. uh, known to us by the name of Daniel. So he was Prime Minister of the Babylonian Empire for like, 34 years or something or other, and then he was Prime Minister of the Persian Empire for at least five years. Mm -hmm. So this is a fair chunk of time and under three different kings. Now, there were a number of kings that ruled in between those times. We don't know whether he had, you know, any influence in the reigns of, you know, Labashi Marduk or uh, Nurgul Sarariza or uh, Labashi Marduk, you know, etc. He certainly didn't have any influence under the time of uh, Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So these were some of the kings that existed between those two times. But this was a man of tremendous influence and who used that influence to do a tremendous amount of good. It resulted in the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Mm. And Nebuchadnezzar is one of the only, um, one of only two autobiographical conversion stories that we have in the Bible. Mm. Then you've got the other great one, which is Mordecai, and he serves as prime minister under the Persian Empire and has a tremendous amount of influence for good there. And so being involved in politics is not wrong. It is not unbiblical. Mm. But there are some things that, some, some issues in which, you know, I would steer very, very, very far away from, and that is involving ourselves in partisan politics. Mm. And that is choosing a side rather than choosing issues. Now, there will always be one side that is more closely aligned with the issues that you that are important to you than another side. But if we become latched onto a particular side of politics and it's just like, well, you know, I'm a left-wing voter or I'm a right-wing voter and it's never going to change, that's when it becomes unhealthy because... As Christians, we need to vote, campaign, whatever it does. I think ACL was mentioned there, uh, and do a a tremendous amount of good in a lot of areas, but I don't agree with everything that they stand for. Mm. I certainly agree with most of it and, you know, love it when they come on the show here. But um, one of the the things that you have right now is this this push that we have between hard and soft secularism, Mm. separation of church and state. Hard secularism pushes the church to the margins of society and says that the church should not have a voice in society. Hard secularism is unreservably antagonistic to religion and leads to freedom from religion. That's the foundation of the French Revolution. Mm. 100 million people died in the last century because of that philosophy. Uh, Soft secularism respects the separation between church and state, but the state values the contribution of the church and the church is welcome to be part of the discussion in the public sphere. Soft secularism provides no favoritism of one religion over another and refuses to have a state church. Soft secularism leads to freedom of religion. And that's where we need to be. There is nothing in the Bible that says that we can't have a voice in the public debate. And we need to have that voice in the public debate. We need to talk about the issues, uh, particularly of religious liberty, that enable us to be able to share the gospel with others. If we are going to wrestle about, uh, against uh, principalities and powers in high places, then we need the freedom here on this earth from the governments that rule us 
to be able to actually participate in that warfare. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.